this is Caleb Knott from San Antonio, Texas. I'm always encouraged and challenged by the true stories on the Compelled Podcast. These testimonies show that God is active in all our lives by freely offering His saving grace and bringing people into relationship with Him and His church. I get excited when I receive the notification on my podcast app that a new episode has been released because I know that I'm about to enjoy a great story with eternal impact. Last time on Compelled, they tested me for cystic fibrosis and I was positive. This is a child disease. You do not get in adulthood. Most people, they'll not graduate high school. They'll not go to college. They'll not get married. They won't have kids. They won't live a normal life. Throughout my life, I felt like I had cystic fibrosis for a reason. Every summer in college, I went and worked at uh, a youth camp. And uh, Amy was working at this this place as well. I was selected to go to a paratrooper school and jump, learn how to jump out of airplanes. Thankfully, I had already committed to work at the camp. Got married a year later, um, and we left in jet ski. We wanted really kids, uh, but we knew that ultimately we couldn't have them, you know, directly. Josh and I got a phone call from a woman who we have never met who said, would you like to be the parents of my child? That we would be able to raise a child is a yes. miracle. I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to Compelled, a seasonal podcast with unique stories from the kingdom of God told by the people compelled to live for him. This is episode 39, and after today, we'll only have one more episode left in season three. Last week, we heard the first part of Josh and Amy Glasscock's story. As a child, Josh was diagnosed with a rare genetic disease called cystic fibrosis, which has no cure and always causes death in its victims. But unlike the doctor's dire warnings, Josh didn't die in his childhood, but attended college and even got married. We ended the first part of their story right as Josh and his wife, Amy, adopted their daughter, Lily Rang. If you haven't listened to part one yet, then I'd really encourage you to hit pause and listen to that before you hear today's story. Just look up episode 38 of Compelled on your favorite podcast app or on compelledpodcast.com. Today is part two of Josh and Amy's story as we hear how Josh's cystic fibrosis has gradually gotten worse and created irreparable damage to his lungs. Soon, they'll be confronted with several life and death decisions, and only God will be able to carry them through the storms ahead. Their story coming up right after a word from our sponsors. One last thing before we jump into the story. We're holding a Zoom call tomorrow night with Josh and Amy, and I'd love for you to join us. This will be your chance to ask Josh and Amy additional questions about their journey, which you're about to hear the exciting conclusion of, and to meet other compelled listeners and members of our team. The call is tomorrow night, Wednesday, April 7th at 7.30 p.m. Central Time. To get on that call, visit compelledpodcast.com slash Zoom for the details. Again, that's compelledpodcast.com slash Zoom. We hope to see you there. All right, now just a quick reminder on the story. Josh's cystic fibrosis is sometimes abbreviated as CF. It's a lifelong genetic disease that causes your lungs and other organs to create too much mucus and fluid. The mucus is abnormally thick and sticky and eventually blocks critical tubes, ducts, and airways. 
Not only does this make it difficult to breathe, but it also increases your likelihood and frequency of catching infections, developing pneumonia, and permanently damaging your lungs. Over time, the damage to your lungs and other organs becomes permanent, and you'll eventually suffocate to death or die from other complications. At the time Josh was diagnosed as a child with cystic fibrosis, the majority of patients never survived beyond childhood. Over time, some treatments have been developed which can help minimize some of the symptoms, but only slightly. There is no cure, and cystic fibrosis always results in premature death. While Josh and Amy were dating, they both lived a very active lifestyle. But after getting married, Josh's health began declining. But it took a very sharp turn for the worst shortly after adopting their daughter, Lily Ray. So we get to 2019. 2019 was the worst year ever for me, health-wise. It was also the darkest, like mentally, emotionally. I wouldn't say necessarily spiritually, but it was, it was like the grimmest moment of my life. So the, it was around May 2019 that uh, I ended up, um, it was right after Easter actually, uh, her family was down here visiting, and I, I woke up one night and I, I literally just felt like this, almost like somebody sitting on my chest. And so I, I checked my heart rate, I checked everything, and like, it, it wasn't going away. It was breathlessness, more than I've never had, really. And so, you know, knowing that I've had a collapsed lung, knowing I've had other things, I was like, okay, we, we need to like, go get this checked out. I was thinking, okay, maybe I have another collapsed lung. That's really what my first thought was. I have another collapsed lung, let's go do the procedure, blah, 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 you know. And so I go and I get checked out and they don't find anything right off the bat. They do the x-ray, they do the stuff. My CO2 levels are high, my oxygen was lower, which is, once again, you know, common because you, if you can't breathe enough oxygen, things like that. So they start testing me, and but this thing's not going away. Like they're giving me some things to kind of calm me down. It's just not going away. And it was, it just started progressing. It stayed constant where I could not breathe. And it was really starting to get to me, like mentally and everything, because like I had no level of like uh, relief. The only level of relief was when they'd give me stuff to like kind of sedate me. Yeah. You know, and that can only last like a little bit or painkillers, you know, and it literally was progressing, progressing, progressing. They found that I had infections, you know, uh, as normal. Um, and but it was really just escalating. But you said it was a it was a sensation of suffocation. Like yes. you're, I'm breathing, but nothing's happening. Yes. Like, and you called it um, fish out of water. Yeah, I felt like a fish out of water. Like it was a level that was. I felt like my mind was going because I felt like I could not breathe at all. Like it was getting worse and worse, and then it escalated so bad one day that um, they had to like really sedate me. And this is this is all at the Austin Hospital. That all you're the still hospital, at. Seton and Austin, uh, and they literally were like, you it, had you had already for a couple of days been given morphine. Yes. Um, and already there was some discussion about with CFers at this point when you're feeling so breathless that you can't, nothing's helping you, only intense medication like morphine yes. or there were some other ones that were, and that's not even helping your situation. No. 
it's helping your mind to calm down because if you're suffocating, your brain is freaking out because it's telling you to freak out because you're suffocating. Yeah. Um, and it's just this cycle. So it's basically to convince your mind that nothing's happening, even though you're still suffocating. So already there had been discussion with like palliative care um, and them saying, okay, well, if you're wanting to go palliative care, then we can help you and we can give you these medications. Yeah. But then the CF doctors are going, if you take those medications, you can't go transplant and you can't get better. Like those things will help you to die better, but they're not gonna make you better. An important concept to understand in this story is lung function. It's normally explained as a percentage of your breathing ability. A normal person like you or me could take a deep breath and be measured with a lung function of 100%. Patients with cystic fibrosis typically begin taking regular lung function tests at age six and continue to do so for the rest of their lives. By the time a CF patient's lung function reaches around 30%, doctors begin urging them to look into a lung transplant. But while modern medicine has made incredible advancements in surgery, lung transplants are still some of the most difficult and dangerous operations that exist. Unlike other transplants, such as kidney or liver transplants, where the patient can live for the rest of their life with their new organ, lung transplant recipients typically only live for a handful of more years, at which point they either die or can try to receive another lung transplant. But again, the surgery is incredibly dangerous, and even more so for a CF patient. According to the Mayo Clinic, only half of lung transplant recipients are still alive after five years. And once that transplant happens, there's no going back. It's an hourglass with a limited amount of sand slowly running out of time. Literally, what happened was is all those morphine uh, drugs, they decrease your lung function. Like I needed it to breathe, felt like I needed to breathe, but it was making me worse. It literally hit me so bad that they literally had to rush me to what they call IMC, which is like uh, immediate. So it's not, uh, it's like in between ICU and a regular room. It's like immediate, you know, critical care type deal. From my, from my perspective, like when we were still in the room and he was getting, like he was having these moments where he's already breathless constantly, but then he would, let's say cough. And that just made it worse because yeah. now he really doesn't have air. His lungs just exhaled all of that and he can't get it back in. And so his face is turning red. He can't talk to me and he's like snapping his fingers. He's, you know, waving his hands. I'm freaking out because I have to interpret that and I don't know what to do. Um, so at this moment that he's talking about, I believe it was May 2nd, um, I had to run out into the hallway and flagged out, like scream at the nurses and the doctor to come in um, because I think all you did say was sedate me. I think yeah. you screamed sedate me. Something. Yeah, I mean, I need something really and, bad. And so from then, they came in and immediately gave you something through your IV. I think he gave you two shots of something to, like, immediately calm him down because he was, like, about to lose it. Um, and then that's when they were rushing you to the IMCU. And that's also when they were talking about putting a trach in, which would have been like the beginning of the end wow. so that was a huge critical point i was like gone like they had to uh, they had to sedate me with stuff because i was so bad that literally i i don't even remember like for the next several hours and what was your lung function at that point 
that was that probably was the, the 18, 18 19. or 19%. Wow. Yeah, I was like, it dropped so bad that literally they, so then it became this balance of uh, kind of a dance in between. They were freaking out. Like I was out, but they were asking her, what do we want to do? Transplant or not? Transplant. Like we're like, what is it? So there's like this transplant thing that, because at this point, when you get this bad as a CFR, there's one or two options. There's one, you go transplant route. And you have to do all the, the tests and the, everything like that to get a lung transplant. Now, that doesn't just solve your problems. That's just kind of a Band-Aid to allow you maybe make it a couple more years, potentially. If everything goes well, that's what you get, a it, couple more years. Is that because the CF gene... No, it's because the lungs are done. They're done. Lungs just don't transplant. Lungs are done. It's not like lungs, a, lungs are the hardest organ to transplant. Not yes. like even, a liver or something. Even no. over a heart. A heart no, is because, easier to transplant Because it's lungs. two factors. You still have CF, and then you're getting a lung transplant, so you become immune suppressed. You know, you don't have an immune system anymore, and you can always fight infections, which are prevalent for CFers. And so it's like this, you know, two bad issues. Yeah. But it's like, literally, that's our only option. Or... The other option was palliative care, where it's, hey, you're just going to die softly. We're going to give you drugs, and you'll, they'll make you comfortable as you go out. That's really where we we're at. So that's why they're like, we're not going to give you stuff. You've got to make decisions. Are we going yeah. to transplant? If we go transplant, we don't want to ruin everything and give you bad stuff, you know, that's going to harm you even worse. So they literally were having to question her, and she's like freaking out, like, I, you know, I don't know. And I'm out of it, like, at this point. Like, I don't I don't even know what's going on. Meanwhile, everybody, like the doctors, the IMCU doctor, the CF doctor, they're wanting an answer. Like, are you going? Because we're giving him medicines and we're either giving him medicines that are gonna make it worse for a transplant or better for palliative care. And we need to know which direction you're going. Yeah. Um, And thankfully, Josh got out of that and he was able to be transferred back to a room after a couple of days. Um, And then he and I got a chance to start talking and asking questions about what does that mean for palliative care? What does that look like? Um, Because Josh was suffering very, very much. Um, There were so many questions with palliative care with, okay, well, those are like life and death decisions. So how much are you going to help somebody pass away? How much are you not helping that? Like, it's too much, at least in my mind, it put too much on me of what decisions I'm making involving Josh's death and that was very scary and I didn't want to overstep bounds or take anything into our hands that's in God's hands sure and then also talking about transplant like what does that require and what kind of comfort measures do you offer at all if we're going to go the transplant route because with transplant they told us this you have to be sick enough to need it strong enough to survive the surgery and psychologically strong enough to handle the recovery. It's not a guarantee. I could die in the surgery, like with the Mm. transplant. It's very possible. Or waiting for the transplant. Or waiting for the transplant. You know, I knew that that was the case. You know, I knew enough about transplant to know that that could be happening. It's not a, hey, I get this, I'm going to make another 50 years. No. It's literally like, once you get that, you, you have a certain amount of time that you've got you know it's a ticking time bomb because your body's always trying to reject that those lungs it's not it's not it's not natural mm-hmm. to have that right at that point it's die comfortably or transplant if you've ever struggled to breathe then you know the panic that runs through your body 
Maybe you crawled into the end of a sleeping bag as a kid and freaked out when you couldn't turn around. Or maybe you accidentally inhaled water into your lungs at a swimming pool in your teens. Or maybe you had an asthma attack as an adult. Hopefully, those moments were brief, but they still stick out in your mind. And perhaps you even subconsciously cringe as you remember what that felt like. For Josh, it was going on not just for hours, but days upon days. The entire time that Josh was at the hospital, he was hooked up to an oxygen tank, but his lungs simply weren't working. They couldn't absorb the oxygen anymore. His lung function was too low. This was a dark time for the Glasscocks, but not just because of Josh's physical suffering. Mentally, I've never been so, like, like I said, most of my life, positive. You know, I've grown up to thought positive, everything. I couldn't keep positive thoughts. I couldn't keep straight thought. I couldn't keep anything. The only thing I could focus on was breathing, and I couldn't do that. So it was the depths of depths of depths that I've never been in my life where I realized this is then. I knew that always it was, you know, it happened, it's going to come. I've had known CFers, I've seen CFers go out that way, and it's not a pretty sight. People that are normal, you become somebody that's like that because you literally you can't breathe. So when yeah. you can't breathe and it's like that constant, I had a psychiatrist come and see me in my room. She started talking to me about, uh, she was trying to teach me mindfulness and like breathing exercises to try to help the situation. And a big pivotal thing was, is when she was getting me to talk, she was like, go to your, go to your place that you would, you know, feel like comfortable that you really like, you know, picture it, tell me about it. So I'm sitting there talking to her. I'm saying, I'm sitting outside in my backyard and I'm seeing my little girl play and she's chasing a butterfly, you know, going around. And I... As soon as I say that, I start busting out crying because I start to think in my mind that I'm not going to be able to be around for, for her. And my goal, my dream was to walk her down the aisle. And I thought, I, I might have an option if I do transport of doing that. And so I've got to do what I can. I've got to go through it. And so we did. And we literally went from left from there and started going transplant route. They originally told us it was going to take two or three weeks to, like, get it approved. Like, through all the tr- uh, the testing and everything. And I'm thinking in my mind, two, three weeks. I'm going to die. I was in that moment thinking... You're still in the hospital at this I'm point. still in the hospital. Like, they're telling me that. And I'm like, I, I can't make it that far. Because at that point, it wasn't, I'm thinking what's going to happen tomorrow, even. It was like, I can't make it next hour. Because I was such in a deep pit where I couldn't do anything. Uh, because what I had to do is I had for transplant to get my body ready for the surgery. So I had to try to exercise, try to walk. I remember this one test where they, I, I'm on oxygen, full oxygen at this time, 24 seven. Or it's one of this tests where I have to do it without oxygen. Mm. She makes me lay on this table and she's like pushing on me and doing different stuff and testing I don't even remember what the actual test was, but I, I don't have oxygen on. I can't breathe. Like, it was the hard, one of the hardest times there, of one of the hardest tests, where she's, you know, putting her probes on me and doing different stuff, and like, I can't, I can't breathe. And so I was like, you know, it was, and she, what, what was made it worse, she made me hold my breath at times. Like, it was a test where I had to breathe all my air out and then have to breathe in and hold it. And I was like, it was literally like I was just praying that whole time, like, Lord, let me get through this because I cannot 
you know, do that. And so finally I was able to get through, but it was a very hard road going transplant because yeah. uh, all the testing. And then here's the deal. It was not a guarantee you get approved. This two to three week thing that they told us in the hospital, you know, we can, you know, we can boom, 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 get you through on the transplant list. Two to three weeks. We can get all these tests. It took two to three months. During this entire time, Josh and Amy's daughter, Lily Ray, was two years old and was frequently cared for by family and friends. Josh and Amy were constantly driving back and forth between their home in Burnett, Texas, and the hospital in San Antonio, which is two hours away. Josh was also wheelchair-bound at this point and could no longer take care of many of his daily necessities. And for Amy, the intensive care was both physically demanding and emotionally exhausting. The Glasscocks had reached their limit. You love Christian testimonies. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to Compelled. But imagine if you could enjoy Compelled stories from Christians throughout the ages, including those who've already passed away. Well, that's what our friends at YWAM Publishing are doing through their Christian Heroes book series by retelling the incredible stories of Christians like George Mueller, a man of prayer who ran an orphanage for 10,000 children in England who trusted God to miraculously provide food and shelter for those orphans, sometimes on a daily basis. Or Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was murdered by the Aka tribe in Ecuador, but chose to forgive and move in with the tribe to share the gospel with them. Or Brother Andrew, who during the height of the Cold War smuggled Bibles to Christians behind the Iron Curtain, all under the noses of communist border guards who could have imprisoned him for life or worse. These are the types of stories that YWAM Publishing is printing, and their books are written for kids ages 10 and above, but frankly, adults love them too. They've published 50 of these biographies so far, and we just partnered with YWAM Publishing to bring you five of my favorite stories. These are the Christians that have inspired my faith and millions of others for decades, which include the three testimonies I just mentioned, as well as Corey Tin Boom and Amy Carmichael. We're calling it the Compelled Christian Heroes Bundle, and I actually worked with YWAM to select these five specific stories, and they agreed to drop the price in half just for Compelled listeners. So it's $30 and includes free U.S. shipping. To buy this bundle for yourself or to give to a friend, visit compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. That's the letters Y-W-A-M, compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. And trust me, if you love listening to stories on Compelled, you're going to love reading these stories too. If you like to stay up to date with current events, then you'll especially appreciate another podcast I enjoy called The World and Everything in It. It's a daily news program, about 30 minutes long, delivered every weekday morning by Christian journalists from around the world. And they aren't just rehashing the current headlines. They're actually doing investigative, boots-on-the-ground journalism while providing biblical cultural analysis. I started listening to their show about five years ago when we first launched Compelled. And since then, they've become one of my go-to sources for understanding current events from a biblical perspective. But they pull no punches. In fact, they tell the facts just as they are, even when it requires sharing uncomfortable truths. Maybe that's why they're one of Apple Podcasts' top 100 news programs. Join me and thousands of other Christians from around the world who listen to the world and everything in it. Just search for The World and Everything in It in your podcast app or visit WNG 
www.thepowerofpositivity.org. Every basic function was was like I had to rely on my wife. I was yeah. very blessed to be able to have my wife be able to be there for because she had to do everything. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't keep straight, you know, like regular thoughts. I couldn't do anything. And so it was this like mixed emotions of like, all right, we go on transplant route, but we don't even know if that's a guarantee. And I can't take anything to help me. So it was like that balance of like, I, you know, I, I know that like these these um, drugs can help, but like they make it worse and I can't get approved if I take it. And so it was like, do we, are we getting this or are we getting approved or are we not getting approved? And so finally we do, we do get approved after all of this type deal. And so now we're on the list. Now it's the waiting game. So what does that mean to be on On the list? list. Okay. So being on the list, um, you're given a number, you're rated, Um, And based on your number, which they get, there's a committee that has to pick you of doctors and they assign you a number based off of your lung function, your urgency, basically how bad you are. So if you're number one, you're going to be the first one to get picked. You're going to be the first one to get called. But it doesn't really work that way because with transplant, everything is based off the donor. Like you can be like worst case scenario, Josh is number one, but the donor that just died, his lungs don't fit him. Or he's not the right blood type. Mm, or he's he's got a history of something that Josh would react to. It literally has to be a perfect fit. Because if it's not, you won't make it very far. Yeah. You won't make it. You'll you'll yeah. die. Yeah. So, so it's really, literally like I have you have to find the perfect the same blood type, the same size, size, the same like structure. I mean, there's like multiple calculations and everything, and you get entered on this list, and so now as soon as you got on the list, you're waiting, but you're in line. Yeah. Okay. So there could be people ahead of you or not, you know, for your lung. If they get a lung that they decide would be a match for you, they call you and you have to answer your phone and you have to be available to leave your house immediately. Right away. Because uh, the organs because don't the stay organs fresh. Because the organs it's a time. are only viable for- Four to six hours. I think it's, with lungs, I think it's four, yeah, four to six hours. Four to six hours. Um. So, yeah, you have a very precious window, and we have a two-hour drive to San Antonio. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, a lot has to go in that. So, we had bags packed. Yep. We had um, emergency phone numbers, like who would watch Lily. We wanted Lily to go with us because we figured we'd be saying goodbye to Josh, and she needs to be there. Even if it's chaotic, like, she's got to be there so that Josh can say goodbye. But we also want somebody there to watch her so that... If something happens or I can't be there. So we had all kinds of um, list of people. We also, um, in while we were still in the hospital in Austin, we had um, organized everything for Josh's funeral. So we had already, um, we had gone to the funeral home. We had made arrangements and we had talked to people. We had written out um, like what we wanted and talked to people about. So we had planned for pretty much any case scenario. Whether Josh were to die, we wanted everything to be prepared for that so that it wouldn't be stressful on me. Um, And then we had stuff for transplant as well. But we got a call September. On September 17th, we got a call. The call. It says, we got lungs for you. Do you want them? I was like, yeah. So 
Because you can actually say no. You can say no. You know, if like some, there's some issue, but they've trained you to literally go, hey. Take what you can get. You Take what you can get. <laughs> Okay, so I was on the transplant list for what? I want to say you were like on it for three weeks. Three or it four seemed weeks. like a long so time. So really, that's not, <laughs> it's not too bad as far as timing. And that was the first call y'all first received. Call. You hadn't yeah. missed any others. Hadn't Correct. missed any others, Correct. anything like that. So they give you a call, say yes, all right, get here. And so normally they say what happens is you get the call, you'll show up, and you'll have time. Because usually the lungs have to be transported from somewhere else. They're being like... Flown in. Flown, flown in. in. Yeah, something like that. So, um, this wasn't the case. We get there. The lungs are at the hospital. The person, the person is that at had the passed yeah. was at the hospital, and now we're on a time. Like, so we were thrown off because we get there, and like they're like, boom, boom, they're getting me down. They're starting to, you know, shave me. They're starting to be able to get everything prepped, and we're like, what? My family's driving from four hours away on the coast of Texas. My sister's driving from Oklahoma. Josh's parents are driving from West Texas. Nobody's there yet, and nobody's going to be there. If it's going at this rate, as fast as they were going, nobody's going to make it. Nobody's going to say goodbye to Josh. I honestly thought that he would die on the table, that he would not recover. And And I had a level of that, too. And you had a level of that, too. So even though we're going through all of this for months to get on the transplant list, I was sick to my stomach the whole time thinking he's going to die on the transplant, but at least he'll die fighting. That was my mentality. Is that that was that was Josh's will and jo- Lily will know he died trying to to live for her. Um, so at this time when we're going through all this and it's being rushed, I'm taking pictures left and right. I'm asking them to take a picture. I'm kissing him so many times I can't even count. And I'm just like wanting him to know I love you. Like probably say something like, just know that I love you. Because I didn't think that I would see him again. Clearly, I'm thinking in my mind, okay, great. This is where I'm at. I'm either literally going to wake up in heaven or it's going to be difficult, a recovery. And then literally it got uh, all the way up to about 10 minutes before we go. And the doctor and surgeon comes out and says, the lungs are no good. Go home. Unbelievably, after months of preparation and receiving the life or death call that they were hoping and praying for and rushing to the hospital, the pair of donor lungs were defective. Surgical teams test donor lungs three times before transplant surgery. They have to move quickly and make fast decisions. And in this scenario, the lungs passed the first two tests. But then just moments before Josh's life-changing and potentially life-saving surgery, the lungs ruptured during the third test. They were no good and would have killed Josh instantly when they tried resuscitating him from the surgery. Only by God's mercy did the surgical team discover this in time with only minutes to spare. But while Josh and Amy were relieved to have that pressure temporarily removed, they also knew this meant that they were starting the emotional roller coaster all over again and waiting for that life-altering call to come at any moment. But while they waited, Josh's condition continued to worsen. Every day, he was having multiple respiratory attacks where he couldn't breathe. I remember a story. I was out here on the front porch, sitting there watching Lily Ray play in the pool. And my wife was there with her, and I hit it. I get an attack. I'm, al- I'm already on my little oxygen machine, five liters. I have to go and get my, my big portal, my big stationary machine, and put it on five liters. So I maxed out on two 
Cannulas. Tan- you know, two nasal things on literally trying to get as much oxygen I can. And so that, that was what was happening four, five times a day. A day. A day. Yeah. Like I would literally get up to I would, just. I would say do, it was twice that. It do, was, I would do just, well, it got yeah. to a height where it was yeah. even more. But I literally just get up to go, you know, to the restroom and like I'm winded, I'm gone. So it was very hard to, you know, during those moments. His lungs were so damaged and so frail that coughing would rupture a blood vessel. We were here and Josh is in the room and coughs up blood and is like choking on it, like drowning in it. <clears throat> and I'm thinking in my head, like, well, what if it doesn't stop? Like he's going to literally drown with blood. So I'm like, I can't drive him to the hospital if he's going to be coughing up blood everywhere. So we did call an ambulance. So all of this stuff and so many respiratory attacks a day, and I can't even tell you how stressful it was. Like all of that's happening this whole time that we're waiting for a call. Yes. So there was no moment of, I mean, there was bits and pieces that God gave us of we're sitting on the couch together and things are fine. Or Josh is laying in bed and Lily's next to him and things are fine. But it was sweet and precious little moments, like minutes of the day that were that were calm. It was not a good season. It was my lowest time in my life, you know. But even with that, like I, you know, the Lord was there. He was always, he's always been there. He was always, uh, you know, giving me levels of peace. And even whenever I couldn't have it, like mentally. Like I was at a level where like mentally I had no hope. I had no, you know, nothing. Like I couldn't even think of the next day or anything like that. So there was like a dark time to where I'm like, you know, but I don't, I, I don't believe like I like doubted the Lord at any time during that. But I was just like trying to see what he wanted out of this, you know, what was the the end goal with it. But so I was just thinking, well, I think at this at that time in my life, it was literally I just got to spend it with my family, you know, yeah, and spend it with my and try to just do different things like that. And so I started kind of, uh, you know, I remember I recorded myself one time, you know, as a video for Lily as she's grown up, you know, and I was trying to think of that, you know, thinking of literally just what can I leave, you know, Lily and Amy that will go for years on, you know. And so they waited for the call, the moment when they would know that there was another opportunity to receive another set of lungs. And while they waited, they daily clung to the Lord, praying and asking God to spare Josh's life until they could receive that phone call. Around this point, Josh's lung function was measured at 18%, meaning that 82% of Josh's lung functionality was shot. They didn't work and simply couldn't process oxygen. If something didn't happen soon, Josh was going to die. But what they didn't know was that God was already moving behind the scenes, doing something they would never have dreamed of. The world tells young women to seek popularity, beauty, pleasure, or whatever will make them happy. Yet the more they chase after those worldly dreams, the emptier they become. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a special conference designed for mothers and daughters to encourage them that there is just one thing worth seeking after, Jesus Christ. The conference is called Seeking Christ and takes place at the Ark Encounter in Kentucky, September 20 and 21st. The conference is taught by Sarah Malley Hancock, the founder of Bright Lights Ministry, and includes skits, 
real-life examples, studies for moms and daughters to do together, and bonus sessions by Ken Ham and Martin Isles from Answers in Genesis. Plus, you'll get to walk through the full-scale replica of Noah's Ark there at the Ark Encounter, which I've actually done and is incredible. Young women will be challenged to seek the Lord first in their lives, deepen their love for God's Word, be rooted in their identity in Christ, gain vision for close family relationships, and shine their light brightly for the Lord. The primary focus is for young women ages 10 to 18 and their mothers, but of course women of all ages are welcome to come. Learn more at brightlightsministry.com. Again, that's brightlightsministry.com. Summer is here, and so is the chance to take a breather from school. And there's a decent chance that the subject your student is most excited to take a break from is math. But it doesn't have to be that way, especially if you're using CTC Math. Their focus is helping your student learn at the pace that's best for them. Every lesson is fully online with interactive questions and clear explanations. And their video tutorials take difficult concepts and break them down into digestible ideas. But here's the crazy part. They have a 12-month money-back guarantee. That's right, you can use CTC Math for an entire year. And if you don't like it, or it didn't work out for you, or if you're just unethical, which as a compelled listener, I hope you're not, then you just shoot them an email and tell them that you'd like your money back, and they'll gladly refund your entire purchase, no questions asked. There is literally no risk for an entire year. You can't beat that. Because their heart is to serve your family. That's why they sponsor Compel, so that we can continue creating stories that will bless and encourage your family. And they want to do the same for your students' math needs. So whether summer is a time for your student to catch up, keep up, or move ahead, CTC Math is there. Learn more at ctcmath.com. Again, that's ctcmath.com. All growing up, the doctors always told me that there is a drug on the horizon. There's something that's coming. If we can just hold your health, you know, there's something coming. They get up to this point where they've got this new drug that's supposed to be helping a lot more of the mutations. The FDA has literally approved it for people that are really bad off to get this early access. Now, not all clinics went through the red tape to get that approval, but my clinic did. They're like, hey, so you want to try this drug? I'm like, thinking in my mind, yeah, that'd be great years ago when I had good health. But now, oh, it's not going to do much. And so I was like, sure, yeah, go for it. And so what they did is they're like, okay, we'll let you know. Well, on my birthday, September 25th of last year, I get a call from my doctors and they say, hey, we're going to get you the drug in a week. I was like, oh, great. Okay. Well, I'm still waiting on the transplant, you know, not knowing where that's going to be the case. And on Amy's birthday, October 3rd, I get the drug. I take my first dose. And so what they told me was, is it normally takes three months or so to act. I'm thinking, well, I don't have three months because I'm on the transplant list. whoop de doo It's not going to do anything. There's not going to be a drug that's going to be able to impact some damage that I have. Because at that point, I still didn't have like that direct hope. Well, I, I'm on the drug for about a month. And I noticed something. Like for the first week, really, I noticed increased energy. Like I remember I was at the point where I can't do much. It was a little more energy, a little less attacks on the lung side. A month goes by and a lot less attacks. And we're like, what? I go in and get a test and the doctor's like, 
At that point, this was the dividing moment right at this point. The doctor's like, this point, remember, he told us there's only two places. There's either you go die home through palliative care or you have the transplant. The first time, he's like, you may want to think about trying this drug out for three months. Like putting yourself on hold the transplant. transplant. I'm like, what? You at this point have been telling me transplant's the only option. But my doctor has seen all the studies and done all the stuff and have had other patients that this has been a game changer. So he's like, you might want to wait. So I was already feeling a little better, somewhat. But I'm like, okay, hey, transplant the very unknown or this is very unknown. But like, I keep my lungs with this drug. Yeah. So we're praying about it. And I'm like, really felt strongly like, okay, you know, I need to... Give this a chance. I, I need to give this a chance. Like, uh, okay. So that was like on a Thursday or Friday, something like that. And so I was like, okay, we were praying about it over the weekend. And I was figuring, okay, you know, on Monday, I'm going to tell the transplant team that, you know, I probably just need to be on hold. I was still kind of like weighing it. But then on Saturday night, I get the call. The transplant call. Transplant call calls and two. says, hey, we got a lung for you. Now I have another parting of the waves. And like, I can say no, because I can. I can. And I, I was like, I felt overwhelming peace and going, I have to say no. And they're like, what? I mean, they were like, kind of ticked off a little bit because they're like, what? It, and I was like, I, yeah, I can't. I need to, I, I actually, I have to say no. And just like that, Josh said no to a new set of lungs. The nurse on the other end of the phone didn't spend much more time on the line with Josh. They hung up and called the very next person on the lung transplant list. But Josh turned around and realized what he'd done. He'd said no to what he'd been working for for months, transplanted lungs. Up until this point in history, lung transplants have been the only option for CF patients to extend their lives for a few more years. And Josh has been on death's door for months in and out of hospitals, receiving breathing treatments on oxygen tanks and has already made arrangements for his own funeral. But now Josh thinks that maybe God has opened the door to another lifeline, an experimental drug with life altering implications. And like little by little, I started improving. Like I feel better. You're not using I'm oxygen not, I'm all not day I'm not using long. oxygen as much. I'm not you know, being heavily on all the meds as much. I'm not, you know, all these things are starting to happen to the point in February. You know, by November. By November. By Thanksgiving, we visited my family. This is the first vacation from home we've taken in a year because we only leave the house to go to the hospital. Yeah. But we went down to my parents and Josh went fishing. Surf fishing. With no oxygen. With no oxygen. And we're looking at this like, you couldn't stand. I you couldn't, couldn't stand. Take I couldn't two do steps nothing. And I'm out in the surf, you know, fishing for like three hours. Just on Easter, you had been like about to die. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And like so six months Easter, later, yeah. uh, you know, basically Thanksgiving. Like it was a game changer turnaround. And that's from that's from thanks or uh, October third, first 3rd. dose. Yep. To Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. So you're wow. talking like less big, than two months. You know, we fast forward to literally going from that time, you know. So anyways, February, I go to a doctor's appointment. I do the lung test. And I am at 31 lung function. Wow. At that point. I was at, you know, 18, 19, you know, um, and literally got to the point where like, 
it now has gotten me to that level where like I was able to function. I was able to go back to work too. Wow. In January. Uh, and so now, you know, like I literally just doing that, it, it's, you know, been a big game changer tremendously. Like the Lord, once again, he was there and it was miracle number three in our lives in a sense that he literally was like, hey, you got, you say you got one or two options. I'm giving you a third. You know, it's either die or go home or, you know, this type of deal with uh, the transplant or I can bring a random drug. At the last minute. The last minute to do it. The interesting thing about when they were telling him about the, this trial drug or this, you know, new drug that had a very small window of people that could take it before it was FDA approved. Part of the requirements to be able to take it before it was FDA approved um, was your lung function had to be below 40% and you had to be um, working towards a transplant. What if all of that, him having such low lung function and us doing all the stuff with the transplant was just to get him to be in that special early group access. that could have early access. Wow. You know what I mean? What if we had done palliative care? One, I don't think he would have made it because no. I think it would have that would have been the direction we're going and you would have probably given up hope. We would have taken, you know, drugs until it messed things up. Um, we probably wouldn't even have made it that far. Because they didn't open until December anyways for people right. that weren't in the early right. access right. match. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah, so it was something else. Like, yeah, literally a miracle. Just... Once again, God's showing off in our lives and, and going, you know what, like I'm, you know, I'm going to open open up the doors to allow you now to have the, the hope of being able to walk Lily Ray down the aisle. Today, Josh has continued to surpass all of the predictions about his life expectancy. Josh no longer has to use a wheelchair and he can walk anywhere he feels like. Apart from an inhaler, he doesn't even need oxygen during the day. In fact, just a few days ago, Josh and Amy texted me that Josh's lung function is now measuring at 34%. Normally, it's incredible for a CF patient's lung function to remain the same, let alone improve. And the fact that Josh's lung function has almost doubled from his low point of 18% is a miracle. And being a living miracle isn't something that Josh takes for granted. As we wrapped up their story, Josh and Amy wanted to share how they found opportunities through their story to share the love of Christ with others. I've had multiple conversations with nurses, doctors, patients about the Lord. It's opened up the door for that. And I, f- I firmly believe that's why God allowed for me to have CF is because I could be able to speak on those things, you know? I think it's a huge testimony to suffer well, to be for 14 days in one room, you can't leave your room, you're in isolation, and all these nurses coming in and to see the scripture and have, we don't play the television while we're in the hospital. We have a scripture over it from Psalm 101 that says, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. And we have people that'll like make a comment about that or, wow, your room is so peaceful or I just love coming in your room. It's so cheerful. And um, but just the witness, like otherwise Josh and I, we wouldn't have much of a ministry. Like we did foster care and we did, we have Lily, but other than that, his job is in a Christian environment and he works in an office. Like it's the hospital 14 mm-hmm. days at a time, six times out of the year. That's like three months altogether that we're witnessing over and over. Like they get to see you 
over and over again. So it's not like a one-time thing. This is over years. So we knew nurses, we had known them for seven years, eight years, nine years. So it's a pretty powerful testimony, I think, um, especially as a Christian, to show them the difference. And they see other CFers or they see other patients that, you know, maybe claim to be Christian too, but don't suffer well mm. or don't um, don't use those opportunities to glorify God. Because we can't, we don't always see that suffering is an opportunity to glorify God. Sometimes we just um, get too focused on the suffering. What would you guys say to someone listening who has recently been diagnosed with a long-term illness or disease or disability? The my number one thing by far uh, that's helped me is trusting in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Uh, because uh, there's scripture where it says, trust in the Lord, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. It was pivotal for me was you trust in the Lord and I've seen how he comes through. Okay, but also remember that we are not guaranteed tomorrow. We, we, yeah. I know that like we, you can very easily get into that mindset that like we have, you know, nothing's going to happen. But that's not what happens. You know, things can go wrong quickly, fastly, you know, everything, right? But what can stay there and, and endure is the faith in, the, in God. He's always there. He's always going to provide. He's in control of all things, too. That's another thing you have to think about is no matter what, he is in control. He is on high. And it's nothing that the devil can do or anybody else can do that's going to be apart from his will. I would say, like, um, from a caregiver perspective or from the <laughs> wife's perspective, whether it's your husband that was just diagnosed with something or um, a child or something, I think it's important to see a diagnosis like that, especially if it's one that's like a terminal diagnosis or you, you have seven months to live or you have two months to live or this is your what looks so horrible. That is such a mercy from God that God just told you that. Because hmm. none of us, like God knows the day. It's already been assigned in the book of light. Like he knows when we're going to die. But we never know that. So for anyone to come to you and say, this is really bad and this is your time frame that you have, that's a mercy from God to, to give you that insight. Because it would be one thing if I was married to Josh, never knew he was sick, never knew nothing, and one day he goes out and he dies. I didn't have any moment to reflect on how sweet our fellowship was together, our union together. I wasn't able to make special memories with him. But if you're told you have six months or you have two weeks or you have any time, like if anybody gives you any kind of time frame, that is a mercy and a grace from God to treasure that time with your loved one. He didn't have to give you that. He didn't have to tell you anything. And you could have regretted something. But that gives you such um, an opportunity to live more carefully for Christ um, and to love each other more deeply than you probably wouldn't have had otherwise. So I think that it would be um, a blessing to, to look at that as a mercy from God and a grace that he would give you that insight and that opportunity. Um, and also to know that he can do anything. Like any diagnosis from man really doesn't mean anything. It doesn't change the day that your husband was going to die. He wasn't going to die when he was 80, but now that he has a diagnosis, he's going to die when he's 42. No, God has that day ordained. 
Um, nothing changed on God's side from a diagnosis. And then here, Josh and I are like, I was for sure last year I'd be a widow. Mm. It's for sure multiple times in our marriage, I'm going to be a widow. I've always thought it from, from the day we got married. I just always had that mentality. And I don't know, maybe I'm going to die before Josh. But, you know, any kind of diagnosis doesn't determine the outcome. Mm. God's already determined the outcome. So we need to be careful how we see diagnosis, I guess. Yeah. And then I would also say, Josh said a phrase when we were first married. It was um, after our first year and we were first going through some hospitalizations together. And even in that first, um, he had a, some back-to-back hospitalizations that were bad. And he had a complication with medicine and his heart almost stopped and all kinds of crazy things were going on. And the doctors at the time were like, we don't know what to do for you anymore. And I remember thinking, like, I've just had one year of marriage with this and he's going to die. Like, we've only had one year. It was so bad. And I remember Josh saying a phrase, and he still says it today. He says, these are exciting times. And he always says that <laughs> when they're the worst, where, like, it looks so dark and depressing and all is lost and I'm going to die or I'm going to be a widow or whatever. He always says, these are exciting times. And he says that because no matter how bad things are, um, God is always on his throne and he's sovereign. So we can look at any kind of situation, any diagnosis, any disaster in our life, and we can say with certainty um, and with a great measure of faith that these are exciting times because nothing changes according to God. He has it all ordained and he's in control. And that's a very safe place to rest. All right, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Paul. Yeah, thank you. Now, it sounds like Josh's story has a happy ending. And by many accounts, it really does. I mean, this is a guy who could have died during any moment of a regular day, whether from rupturing a blood vessel while coughing and drowning in his blood, running out of oxygen and suffocating to death, or dying on a surgical table during a lung transplant. You name it, it could have happened instantly. And in many ways, it still can. While the drug that Josh is taking has had unbelievable positive effects for Josh, it's still experimental and it's not a cure. There's simply no knowledge about any long-term side effects about the drug and his lungs could still unexpectedly collapse again or his other organs that have been damaged by a lifetime of cystic fibrosis could fail or he could be killed in a worldwide pandemic that attacks the respiratory system. The current life expectancy of CF is 37 years, which is the age that Josh will turn this September. And I hope that you can join me in praying for Josh and his continued health. But in other ways, perhaps it's been a blessing. It's given Josh an incredible testimony to share with others. And it's also given him and Amy plenty of time to reflect on life and death. And they have lived their life to the fullest. In Ecclesiastes 9, God reminds us that no man knows his time. Even a perfectly healthy person like you or me, we don't know. Only God does. May we each live as though our days are numbered, and may we live them for the glory of Him who made us. Now, don't forget to join us tomorrow night on our Zoom call, Wednesday, April 7th at 7.30 p.m. Central Time. Josh and Amy will be on that call to answer any questions you may have, and it's a great chance to meet other compelled listeners and members of our team. You never know who's going to join. So to get on that call, visit compiledpodcast.com slash Zoom for the details. Again, that's tomorrow night, Wednesday, April 7th at 7.30 p.m. Central Time. 
This episode was produced by me and my wife, Sarah Hastings. Our editor is Zach Fowler. Our assistant editor is Jonathan Schutz. Production intern is Ethan Adams. And our music outro is by Ben Jackson and Brian Ficchino. Next week, our guest will be Ken Freeman, who as a young boy was beaten, molested, and tortured as a child for years. Anyone ever claiming to love him simply wanted to abuse him. But then one day, Ken was introduced to the love of a perfect father, and his life would never be the same. Stay tuned for a sneak peek. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and you've been listening to Compelled. We'll be back next Tuesday with the season three finale of Compelled. My mama drugged my sister into the room. I'm 10. She's eight. Got a knife in my throat. Her whiskey breath's in my face. She's telling me we came from hell. We cost her too much money. She didn't want us. My dad didn't want us. You know, we were a huge mistake. We'd be better off dead. One last thing before I go. If you'd like to meet up this year in 2024, I will actually be on the road for a few events, either speaking or exhibiting at some conferences. I am still nailing down all the details, but already I know that I'll be at the Texas Homeschool Convention in Fort Worth from April 18th through 20th, the other Texas Homeschool Convention in Houston from May 30th through June 1st, the Home Educators Association of Virginia Convention in Richmond from June 6th through 8th, and there's also the chance that I might be at some other events in Louisville, Kentucky and Nashville, Tennessee later in the year, but we haven't finalized those details yet. If you live near any of those locations, then I'd love to meet you. You can also see our latest up-to-date calendar of events at our website, compelledpodcast.com events. And I hope to see you there.